there and welcome to Brain for Business, your podcast for all things brain, behavioural and organisational sciences. It's great to have you with us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie, and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback, or even questions that you might have. While in the Western world, gender has traditionally been viewed as binary and as following directly from biological sex, in recent years, these views have started to change. Gender is now seen, at least by some, as, as less binary, and more independent of sex. These changes are reflected in societal developments such as the growing support for transgender individuals and in new policies and practices such as unisex bathrooms and, in some countries, the legal recognition of a third gender. To explore these questions further and to gain a better understanding of transgender issues, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Tekla Morganroth. Tekla Morganroth is Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Purdue University. Their research examines why and how people maintain social categories and hierarchies, with a particular focus on the gender-sex binary and its consequences for women and members of the LGBTQ community. Some of Tekla's current projects include research on opposition to policies and practices that challenge the gender-sex binary, the psychology of different feminist ideologies, the link between gender non-conformity and identity denial, and support for and opposition to the decriminalization of sex work. Tekla, welcome to Brain for Business. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, well, we are delighted to have you with us to, to tease out some of these issues. And I guess to start with, what what does the term transgender mean? And I guess, are, are there different perspectives on, on what it might mean? Yeah, so the term transgender can be used in different ways. So it's often used as an umbrella term to refer to any gender identities that differ from people sex assigned at birth. So if someone is like if a baby comes out of the the uh, womb, usually they're like, oh, it's a boy or it's a girl. So that's kind of what we mean when we say sex assigned at birth. So that's usually kind of determined by doctors um, by looking at the baby's genitals. And gender identity is sort of this inner sense for like how you feel, like which category you identify with. And for most people that is aligned with their sex assigned at birth. So most people, when they're like, oh, when the doctor's like, oh, it's a boy, then they also come to identify as a boy and later as a man. But for some people that doesn't really uh, match up in the same way and they might identify as the opposite, I'm putting this in quotation marks, like opposite sex, because of course that like kind of gives the, off the idea that there, there are opposites and that there are only two mm -hmm. genders. Um, and for some people, it also might be that they identify with something that is neither a woman or a man or neither a boy or a girl. Um, so they might identify as non-binary or as um, agender or multi-gender. So there's many different identities that fall under the trans umbrella. A lot of the times it's used to just refer to these binary identities. So transgender women, which would be women who were assigned male at birth, and transgender men who are men who were assigned female at birth. And that, uh, I guess, contrasts with a, a term I've heard before, uh, cisgender people. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So cisgender just basically means people whose gender identity matches their sex assigned at birth. So that's just kind of the majority of people would be would fall into that category. 
So what then are some of the key issues and, and perhaps even challenges facing transgender people? So there are a range of different issues. So one of the key issues is just getting their identity recognized, both legally and by society. Um, they also face a lot of stigma. Um, so um, especially in recent years, there has been an uptick of kind of anti-trans rhetoric and very strong feelings um, that trans identities are inherently problematic or that there is something really bad about being trans. That has as the visibility has grown and the like acceptance for transgender people has grown, also this reaction has grown a lot. Um, so a lot of trans people face harassment on a daily basis, misgendering, but also discrimination in the kind of when in the context of housing, in the context of uh, workplaces. The majority of um, transgender people report having um, been discriminated against in the workplace at some point. Um, so that's really problematic. And that also has important consequences for their mental health and physical health um, with, uh, for example, um, suicide rates or attempted suicide rates being um, about nine times higher among trans people compared to um, cisgender people. Um, and also that is uh, partially due to the treatment um, that they receive. So it's not just that they are just mentally ill in general, and that's sure. being trans is part of that and being suicidal is another part of that. Um, but for example, some preliminary research, I don't think this is published yet, but um, one of my colleagues, um, Selene Gülgers, um, recently told me about this, um, some work that shows that at least among transgender children, if they are being affirmed in their identity by their parents, um, their mental health is at the same level as um, their cisgender peers. So it's not just the case that, oh, trans people just are unhappy in life, but that the circumstances that they live in causes um, these mental health issues. You mentioned there that you know, in, in recent years there had been an, an uptick in, in anti-trans uh, rhetoric. Is that simply because there's also been greater awareness of, of you know, the trans transgender people and, and greater, I guess, awareness in media and so on? Or, or has it actually become worse, the, the anti-trans rhetoric, I mean? I think it has become worse. I mean, I don't know of any data on that, of like sort of longitudinal data that shows how that has progressed. To me, it almost seems like there's more, more of a polarization rather than it just like getting worse in general. So I feel like there are also many people who are now more accepting of trans people, and that's of course great. But then there's also like this really strong and very vocal opposition and like partially from groups where you would kind of expect that. So people who are also more homophobic and more racist and more sexist also tend to be more transphobic. So it's just kind of any marginalized um, group or low status group they just don't like very much. So for example, some very conservative groups um, sure. show also higher levels of transphobia. That's not super surprising to me. But then you also have this kind of vocal um like pushback from some feminist groups um, where you wouldn't necessarily expect that because they tend to be more accepting of um, LGB identities in general. And often those things go together, but they, you have this, and of course this is not all feminists, but like a, and in my data, not a small minority um, of feminists in the UK and the, in the US, but particularly in the UK um, show pretty strong anti-trans views. And that's surprising to me and not something that I, would have predicted like let's say 10 years ago okay and and am i right in thinking that when you use the term 
LGB identity that you were consciously discerning between LGB and LGBTQ plus? Yes, absolutely. So um, when I say LGB, I just mean sort of lesbian, gay, bisexual um, individuals, LGBT plus, LGBTQ plus, I mean also trans people, um, people who are questioning their gender identity, um, non-binary people, all kinds of other groups. So that's a to me a more inclusive term. And yeah, like these um, gender critical feminists, as um, with th that is the term that they um, prefer to use uh, for their sort of ideology, I guess. And they would not be inclusive of that, but they're generally pretty supportive of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. Okay. What then are you know based on on your research and um, and I guess broader perspectives? What then are some of the impacts? on transgender people of the these issues and these challenges so it very much impacts their ability to just function as normal members of society and kind of contribute to society in the same way um, and it has really severe impacts on their mental health as i already mentioned and this is particularly the case for trans people who also have other marginalized identities so um, trans women of color in particular face extremely high levels of pretty extreme violence in some cases, um, but also harassment, um, discrimination. And so it's not just, so it's, it's, it's an issue for all trans people, but then it even like makes the marginalization that some groups already face um, much more extreme. Okay, so it's, it falls into that broader intersectionality category where people are even being discriminated against for multiple reasons, not just for being part of one category, if I can use that term. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even just the case that these things add up. So you might expect like, oh, a person of color is facing racism and a trans woman fa is facing transphobia. But often these things don't just add up, but like multiply in a sense. So like, it's not just, oh, they face these two different forms of stigma, but these different forms of stigma and discrimination interact to produce unique experiences that can be particularly bad um, for certain groups. Okay, you mentioned uh, earlier on the um, you know the, the highest suicide rates uh, amongst, uh, or uh, make sure I understood correctly whether it was suicide rates or suicidal ideation rates uh, amongst transgender people. Are, are there other, uh, I guess, aspects resulting from that discrimination? Just things like depression and uh, and other issues more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I used the um, sort of, I think the statistic that I mentioned is based on number of people who have attempted suicide, okay. um, I believe. But yeah, we see that also for all kinds of other mental health issues, anxiety, depression, um, kind of most um, sort of mental health issues that you can think of. But also, we know from like a vast body of research that mental health um, can also affect physical health. So um, you see these less extreme, less, in a ex less extreme way, but you see these differences in like um, physical health outcomes as well. So if we take the, those different elements and, and you mentioned there, for example, gender critical feminists and, and people who, you know, maybe might be on the more conservative end of the, the political or social spectrum, what, what do you think and what does the research show actually underlies their opposition, I guess, to, to trans inclusive policies? That's a great question. And I am um, very excited to talk about that. Um, so there is still so research is kind of still figuring that out. So I don't have definite questions. But one thing that I find particularly interesting in this um, context is that 
it seems to be the case that the arguments that people make are not actually like reflective of the actual reasons. So when you look at the discourse on these policies, trans-inclusive policies, particularly policies that give trans women access to women-only spaces, one of the main arguments that people make is about cisgender women's safety. Or, I mean, they just say women's safety, but they mean cisgender women. So often the argument that are being made, especially by people who are not like, like blatantly transphobic and just using transphobic slurs and just being extremely hateful, but by people who maybe on the surface seem a little more reasonable, um, what they often say is like, oh, we don't have anything against trans people. My The reason why I'm opposed to this is not because I hate trans women or feel like trans women shouldn't exist or shouldn't be allowed to live as the gender that they identify with. But what I'm concerned about is that if we give trans women, especially trans women who have not medically transitioned, so who haven't had surgery or haven't um, undergone any form of um, gender-affirming healthcare, if we give them access to women-only spaces based solely on their identity, based solely on them saying, I'm a woman, then that would mean that um, cisgender men could abuse this policy and also gain access to these vulnerable women. So predatory men could kind of come into these spaces as well and then like assault um, or harm women in some way. And that seems very positive, right? Like, not positive, but that seems benevolent. That seems mm. like, okay, of course, women should have a right to be protected from male violence. And we know that the perpetrators of violence against women is primarily men. And we know um, that that is a valid concern that women um, should feel safe. But if you think about this a little bit more, it doesn't like the argument kind of doesn't hold up. So most cases of um, gender-based violence happen not in public spaces such as public bathrooms, they happen in private spaces and are perpetrated by men known to the victims. So this is not like a stranger coming into a bathroom and assaulting um, women. Also right now, no one would, it's not like there's security guards outside of bathrooms, right? Like if a man wanted to go in and harm women, they could do that right now. So we were just not convinced that that is what's going on. So I, I was thinking, okay, Maybe this is just a way to sound non-prejudiced because no one wants to sound prejudiced. And maybe this is just all kind of like an excuse that people can make like, oh, I'm against it because of these benevolent reasons. I care about women's safety, but actually I just don't like trans people. Mm. So we ran a series of studies where we kind of looked at that. And what we found was that indeed opponents of trans inclusive policies claim that uh, their male violence concerns are more important, uh, a more important reason than their attitudes towards trans people. But then when you look at the actual patterns in the data, that's not what we find. We find that attitudes towards trans people more strongly predict opposition to trans inclusive policies. And what is more that if you like experimentally in like a sort of experimental setting, shift around trans attitudes to make, if you manage to make trans attitudes a little bit more positive, then that is also reflected in policy support. So if you manage to switch that, then that translates into uh, more positive views on these trans inclusive policies. But if you manipulate or like um, sort of like experimentally shift around male violence beliefs, that does not do anything for policy views. So that does not make people more supportive of trans inclusive policies, kind of indicating that this argument that it is about male violence just does not, we just don't find that in the data. It really just seems to be about prejudice and attitudes towards trans people. Interesting. And as you were talking there, I was thinking about, you know, historical experiences, say with, with, with racism, where my, someone might say, you know, I'm not racist. I have lots of 
you know friends from a different community whatever that might be and it's sort of but they just don't choose to see them very often or whatever you know whatever it might be whatever kind of excuse dare i say it, that 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 might be and i mean first of all is that a valid equivalence that i'm making and and second of all if it is a valid equivalence is there anything that that could or maybe should be learned from the history of kind of breaking down some of those you know racist practices in in, in different countries and, and societies around the world yeah so I, I absolutely do think that we've seen similar things in the past um, in the context of race in the context of um sexual orientation um so people generally like don't want to seem prejudiced and so they are like um, very motivated to not seem prejudiced, even if they are. And I think all cases are slightly different. So I'm always a little hesitant to say like, oh, something worked for this group. Can we do the same thing for this sure. other group? I don't think that's necessarily the case, but there are also parallels. So we can make some points that like, yes, yeah, some of these lessons that we've learned, we could also um, apply here. And I think we see some parallels, particularly with sexual orientation. So at first, so for example, among gender critical feminists, especially, but also I think like just opponents to trans inclusive policies, maybe more generally, um, people are very resistant even to the word cisgender, like they don't like to use that word for their group. They are just like, no, we're normal. We, we're just like women and men. We don't have to use this word cisgender. And that is like ex exactly the same thing that happened when first people started talking about heterosexual people. They're like, no, why are you using this term? I'm not heterosexual, I'm just normal. Mm -hmm. So there is also like this kind of the same types of resistances that we've seen with other cases um, that really changes things. And we know from all these like sort of historical examples where now attitudes are much more positive, that also policy changes attitudes. So it's not just that if you have more positive attitudes, you are more likely to implement a policy that's inclusive of these marginalized groups. But if we see if these policies are implemented, that also affects how people, um, people's attitudes on an issue. So for example, legalizing same-sex marriage um, has also resulted in more positive attitudes um, towards um, LGB people. And so I think what we can learn is that it's maybe not necessary to wait until like everyone is on board with these policies, but that um, also implementing trans-inclusive policies can send an important message and actually make a difference in how people view trans people. Yeah, uh, the it reminds me as you're speaking of, of a campaign which uh, I'm based in, in Dublin, in Ireland, the um, Dublin bus, the, the the government agency that runs the, the, the buses in Dublin, as the name would suggest, that they ran a number of years ago um, in support of gay pride and so on. And, and, you know, there were these sort of, you know, bus drivers from, you know, ostensibly quite conservative communities saying, well, you know, I once had a daughter and now I've got a son and I love them dearly. And it was also that thing, they're still, it's still the same person. It's still my child. And 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 that's okay. So kind of almost breaking down those barriers and recognizing the, the essential humanity um, of, of the person. Yeah, I love that. And I think, I mean, that's also like partially, I feel like we as a society just need to be less obsessed with like with gender and with sex. Just like I'm always just completely like it's just it's a person right this is one attribute of a person who has many different other attributes and I'm always puzzled by these things even like these gender reveal parties that like I think are particularly <laughs> um like popular in the U.S. but yeah. seem to come like creep into other contexts as well like into other societies I'm always like this isn't even like 
you're not revealing someone's gender. You're revealing someone's genital. Like it should be called genital reveal party because that is what it is. And why are people so obsessed with it? This is a baby. Why are you like, why is that the one thing that you're so interested in when this is just a tiny blob that has the potential to be so many different things and like have has all this potential to be this complex, cool, unique human being. Why are you so focused on this one, one attribute? Yeah, and particularly when the gender reveal parties end up burning down neighborhoods yeah. and forests and, and everything else. That's a exactly. different discussion <laughs> and a different podcast interview. Um, just in, in, in terms of that kind of uh, uh, obsession that sometimes people have, can you maybe explain a little bit about about pronouns? Because that's one of the first things that people might notice. And, and it's much more common, say, a lot of the organizations I work with through my consultancy business, well, you'll see more people now will have he, him, she, her, they, them after their names. What's what's the deal with, with pronouns? Okay, there's so much, I guess there's a lot, a lot of things about pronouns. So I think pronouns are a way that we use in society in the English language and also maybe other maybe many other languages um we use pronouns to signify a person's gender that's of course not something we need to do there are languages that don't do that there's also languages where you have pronouns for other social um identities so for example some languages have pronouns um that signify age whether you're younger or older than uh, the person you're talking about so it's kind of like a sign of respect which is interesting. But in the English language, we have pronouns that signify gender. And so it's in it's impossible not to refer to someone's gender when you use pronouns to refer to that person. And so it's important to use the right ones because it's like it can be really affirming to hear the right pronouns being used. And it can be really unaffirming and jarring to hear pronouns that don't match with people's identity. So that can really be a form of uh, misgendering, a form of identity denial, it kind of signals that you don't take the person's um, identity seriously. And I think why, the reason why more and more people are using this, even who aren't transgender, so for example, most people um, like cisgender men, no one would even use a different pronoun, everyone would use he, him. But I think the reason why more and more people are using this is to signal that this is a normal thing to include in your um in your information, in your email signature, for example, or in your online profile, because then it's not just trans people who do that, but it's everyone. So it's like also not outing yourself as a trans person necessarily. Um, it's just something that everyone does. And it, I mean, it could be that someone who looks like a cisgender man doesn't use he, him pronouns. And so it's just good to know that there's also some research by um, India Johnson um, and colleagues. Um, she does some really cool work and she has shown that um, including pronouns in profiles not only like also signals belonging to LGBTQ people more broadly, even people who aren't trans. So it just signals some sort of value that a like an inclusive value that a company, for example, holds, or like signals values that individual people might have. So it signals that this is a safe space where you can sh share your pronouns, where your pronouns will hopefully be respected, and where you're not a weirdo for sharing your pronouns. So I I think this is really good. I think. Ideally, everyone should do it. At the same time, I think it's also important not to um, force people to um, include pronouns because that can also make, for example, trans people really uncomfortable. They might not be at the point in their journey where they want to share their pronouns or that might just make them feel pressure to like now decide what their pronouns are. So I think it's also important to be mindful of that. But I think overall, if people feel comfortable sharing their pronouns that's a really really helpful thing and can also just signal 
values and signal inclusivity in a really like low cost way. Like it doesn't, that's not something that's difficult to do. It's very easy to do and it can have a really important impact. Okay. Well, I guess building on that then, and thinking about things from a say an organizational perspective, you know, what sorts of things would you feel that that leaders and, and indeed organizations more broadly could could do to be more inclusive and, and, and more supportive of transgender people? I think there's many things that they can do. I think it's important to point out that this is now my opinion, like many other people might have different opinions. I think there's also it's important to point out that some um, sort of policies and practices might be better for non-binary people and some might be better for binary trans people. So I think there's something important to um, to research there and investigate there that hasn't really been looked at very much um, as far as I know. But I think, so for example, the pronoun thing is something that is really easy to implement. I think particularly if leaders do that, that can signal something important because it signals some, they kind of are representative of the organization. But I think also other things such as like having gender neutral spaces or gender inclusive spaces can be really helpful. There's some work also showing that. So like, for example, when I go into a building and I'm non-binary, um, I usually have to either go to the um, to the accessible bathroom, um, which I usually do. But then it's also like I am able bodied. I don't want to like there's usually just one. Right. So like I'm then taking up the space that is should also be for other people who maybe need that for like physical reasons, or I have to decide to go into the women's or men's bathroom. Usually either way, I often get yelled at or people are like, um, what are you doing here? This is the wrong bathroom. It's not very pleasant. I've been like, yeah, I've been yelled at. I've been physically dragged out of a women's bathroom before. So that's all like not very fun and pretty scary. Mm. And so I think having gender neutral bathrooms is really important. Um, That can be a safe space for for people who have for gender minorities, but also for just for gender non-conforming people. So some of my um, own work that isn't published yet indicates that people feel um, even with cisgender people who don't conform to gender norms, who don't present in sort of gender conforming ways, um, people feel like they shouldn't use the bathroom that, that lines with their sex assigned at birth, or in that case also their gender identity. So people like these spaces, these gendered spaces are just like a breeding ground for harassment for cisgender non-conforming people, for gender minorities, for everyone. So I feel like we should just get rid of them. There's also really cool work by um, Kim Cheney showing that these um, gender neutral bathrooms can signal inclusivity to other groups as well. So for example, racial minorities, because it signals something about the organization being inclusive in general. So even though they don't necessarily directly benefit from these spaces in the sense that it's something that is makes their lives any easier like they could just if they're cisgender they can just use the bathroom that um, kind of is there for their gender it still signals something positive for them and also to women Um, so these kind of trans inclusive sort of policies and practices and spaces are not just like even from a like from the perspective of an organization you're kind of like getting more than like you're getting free, that you're getting something for free. That you're like basically doing something for trans people, but the groups that are benefiting from it are more than just trans people. And you're gonna look really good to a range of different groups. So even if you're just thinking this from a like sort of self-presentational perspective and you don't like actually care about any of these groups, you can really like portray yourself as a really inclusive organization by doing these things. 
to like a range of different groups. So it's it's just like I feel like organizations really benefit from this as well. It's not just that minoritized groups benefit from these changes. And I guess the the only risk there is if it becomes the the the, the gender version of greenwashing, where you know we're doing all this nice stuff, but there's nothing genuine or meaningful behind it. Yeah, so I think that that is a risk. Um, but if I like have the, to choose between an organization who doesn't care about trans people and is not doing these things and an organization that doesn't care about trans people and does those things, even if they don't care, I'd still rather see an organization like taking these steps and making it more inclusive, even if that is just for an image. Like even if they just want to improve the image, they just want to seem like they're inclusive. Of course, there's a risk of then like, trans people thinking, oh, this is a great place for me to work. I'm going to go there. And then like the climate is actually horrible and no one, like it's not supportive at all. So I guess there is some benefit to like being honest. Um, but as I've already said, like these um, changes in policy and practice can also inform attitudes. So hopefully that would also have an impact on who chooses to work for this organization, um, what people in this organization think about trans people. So I feel like these changes are good even if they come from a maybe calculated and not actually inclusive sort of, um, yeah, like if that is the driving force behind it. And I guess these days, particularly with things like Glassdoor and, and the internet, people would find out pretty quickly if it was hypocritical. Exactly. Yeah. So if people want to find out more about transgender issues more broadly and, and get a better understanding of those the challenges and, and things that they, they, they could perhaps think of doing, at least from an organizational leadership perspective, are there any resources that you could point them towards? I mean, I think most um, sort of major LGBTQ plus organizations have some pretty good information on these issues. So um, the Stonewall um, website has like um, a like pretty good resources, um, answers lots of sort of frequently asked questions, um, and also has more links to other resources where you can read more about these issues. So I think as long as you're making sure that the organization is trans inclusive, there's a lot of good resources out there on the internet to read more about these issues. Okay, great. And uh, I guess finally, if people wanted to find out more about your, your own research, is there anywhere particular they can go? Well, it depends on what exactly they want to find out. Um, I do have a lab website, which is if you just look up my name and go to my Purdue um, profile that is linked there. So there um, is a little bit more information about the different projects that I'm currently working on, the other magical people in my lab who I'm working with, and then also a list of publications that comes out from the people in my lab. Um, so that is probably a good source. I'm also on Twitter. If people want to follow me on Twitter and people can are also free to email me if they have more questions about specific things that they would like to know more about but yeah that's okay. where you can find me fantastic well we can put a, a, a link to your, your twitter account and also to the to the lab in in the show notes professor tegler morgenrod of uh, Purdue university thank you very much for your time thank you very much for having me this was fun